Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to inmates of the Clements Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, prisoners are facing backlash for exposing abuse by prison staff. Several inmates have come forward about the treatment faced by political prisoner Kevin Rashid Johnson. Their testimonies relate to a December 21, 2016 incident in which Rashid was bound and gassed in his cell after being falsely charged with improperly stored items. His property was confiscated and Rashid was left in the unclean cell to choke on the fumes. Rashid and several inmates from his pod came forward to expose the frequent abuse of prisoners by TDCJ staff, and especially the frequent use of chemical weapons. These inmates are now facing backlash from prison staff, such as isolation, confiscation of property, and deprivation of the means to file grievance. Go to rashidmod.com for more information. That's R-A-S-H-I-D-M-O-D.com. Last week, over 40 outside supporters called into the warden of Barriga Maximum Correctional Facility in Michigan, where Harold, H.H. Gonzalez, has suffered escalating repression. H.H. faces ongoing harassment after being accused of participating in the strike and protests at Kinross Correctional Facility last September. After seven months with no misconduct tickets, he has recently received false tickets in order to justify keeping him in solitary confinement indefinitely. There's no way to maintain ongoing contact with H.H., but he notified his supporters that if there was no redress, he would begin a hunger strike Thursday, April 20th, and continue until he's released from segregation. We cannot confirm at this time whether he is on hunger strike and are waiting for more information. You can learn about how to support H.H. and other Michigan prisoners accused of participating in the national strike by visiting michiganabolition.org. Today, April 28th, marks the 12th day of an ongoing hunger strike conducted by Palestinians confined in Israeli prisons. The strike, which began on April 16th in conjunction with the publication of a New York Times op-ed authored by political prisoner Arwan Barghouti, is protesting the arbitrary detention and ill-treatment of Palestinian prisoners. The strike began with around 1,000 participants, but has grown to around 1,500, with thousands protesting in solidarity. Supporters of the strike have experienced violent retribution from Israeli defense forces. According to Barghouti, Palestinian prisoners suffer from torture, inhumane and degrading treatment, and medical negligence. Since 1967, at least 200 Palestinians have died from this kind of treatment in Israeli prisons. On Saturday, April 15th, inmates in Cook County Jail in Chicago set fire to new uniforms intended to mark off, quote, problematic detainees who engage in sexual misconduct, unquote. According to mainstream media, prisoners, quote, used a microwave to ignite a wick to light the uniforms on fire, which, quote, sent four corrections officers to the hospital, unquote. Cook County is the largest jail or prison in the country and is located in the Little Village neighborhood on Chicago's south side. We saw reports of demonstrations of neighborhood solidarity for these prisoners, including widespread postering in the area. Prosecutors in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, have begun an inquest into the staff of the local county jail over the circumstances surrounding the April 2016 death of Terrell Thomas. Thomas, known to struggle with mental illness, was placed in solitary confinement for over a week. In that time, he was deprived of running water and lost 35 pounds before being found dead of dehydration on the eighth day. 
The inquest will allow prosecutors to question witnesses under oath in front of a jury before determining whether to press charges. Last week, we reported on the hunger strike launched by prisoners held in the Northwest Detention Center, which is a private prison run by the GEO Group to hold non-citizens awaiting deportation. Pressure continues to mount on GEO Group to give in to the prisoners' demands, with a flurry of outside organizing and an ongoing occupation outside the facility. We're sharing the words from three prisoners participating in the hunger strike. The GEO Group claims that they comply with the needs of the residents that are in non-penal custody and in the care of the immigration federal authorities. Our response to this is that if we are not in a criminal process, why is the first thing they do when people set foot in detention is to classify us as they do in a prison? The people that are transferred from prison are put in the highest level, that is level three, and their uniforms are red. These detainees can't work outside of their unit or take part in other activities. They are discriminated against and segregated from the rest of the detainees. The level two and one detainees can work in the kitchen, the laundry, and in general cleaning. And yes, this place is inspected each month. But when there is an inspection, they grab a group to wax the floors and paint the walls, a job that would cost them a lot of money. The people who do work are only given a top ramen soup and a bag of chips. The workers labor for eight hours and only get one dollar for this. I'm writing this statement to let people know my personal opinion about the statement that the president of GEO made. He wrote it only to defend the economic interests of his company and employees. He does not mention the profits that he is making through the daily payment that he is receiving from the federal government for each one of us for every day that we spend here. Although we do not know the exact amount, we know that it is enough to provide us with better food, medical care, and higher pay for the work that the detainees do within the facility. The newly arrived detainees receive used clothes that in most cases causes itching and rashes on the skin. I want to also mention that the prices at the commissary are very high and because the food we receive is of very poor quality, most of us have to buy food from the commissary. We know that this is also a source of income for them because they take a percentage from all the sales. They also mention that we have enough space, but in reality we are only allowed to be out in the yard for an hour. This is worse than when we were in prison because we were allowed to be out in the yard all day long. We had a gym, educational programs, and activities that kept us busy with less stress. Here, when people have a health issue, they go to see the doctor and most of the time they just give us naproxen or ibuprofen. I recommend that we drink a lot of water. We have family visits through a small window. If they have the space and personnel at the very least, we would have the opportunity to have contact visits. Also, most of the jobs, that is, all kinds of work, including kitchen, cleaning, laundry, etc., is done by the detainees. And on some occasions, I mean whenever the facility needs painting, polishing, and the floors cleaned, they ask us in the units whether someone wants to do the work. The people that agree to do the work spend one or two nights doing the work and they only receive one cup of soup and a bag of chips. If this is called humane treatment, well, I am sorry because I call this inhumane treatment and protecting their own economic interests. Because they know that if the facility is closed, they will no longer have their little gold mine. And all because they don't want to spend a little more money of the percentage that they receive from the budget the government grants them, which incidentally is more than enough to give us better service and human treatment. Once more, they say that they don't want to separate families of detainees, but visits are one hour long from across a piece of glass, and those that are from out of state can't see their families because video visits are only available in pods F1 and F2. Where is the right to equal treatment? 
We ask them to put a video unit in our pod, but they say it won't benefit them because not everyone will use the video visit. The food has gotten worse. Smaller portions, but the same food. How can this be competent detention? Everything I say here is the truth. Live updates on the struggle can be found at facebook.com NWDC Resistance. This week features a variety of conversations that we're sharing with you through a partnership with StoryCorps. The StoryCorps event, Dismantling Barriers to Life, was a speakout about the impacts of mass incarceration that was hosted last month in Chicago. These are some of the stories collected for the event. Dismantling Barriers to Life was hosted by StoryCorps, Cabrini Green Leoid, Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, Community Renewal Society, Growing Home, and Transformative Justice Law Project of Illinois. This first story features a conversation between Jonathan Little and Lamont Lay. They're from the Back of the Yards neighborhood in Chicago, and they both work for Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation. They discuss the changes they've seen in the Back of the Yards and reflect on the work that they do. This piece was edited by Isabel Vasquez. I used to live across the street, and it used to be a big church over here. One, really no programs in our communities. So like we just used to find anything to get into just to occupy our time. And our activity was breaking into the church, which was closed down, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only because they had stuff that as young kids, like we wanted. Like they had a bunch of bikes that was never being used. They had a bowling alley. Uh, we had going there and just bowl and run out the door. <laughs> One time we went into a different door because they had boarded up the door we was running in. And we ran in and like as soon as you walk into the door, it was a big picture of God. He was just like staring down at us. <laughs> so we left and never went back in after that day. But <laughs> yeah, so this is basically the community that uh, we grew up right here in the back of the yards. When we was growing up, it was like more businesses that was open that's now closed. The neighborhood is seemed like it's forgot about. It's hard to find jobs. It's a lot of violence going on. I done been through like a lot washing up with cold water, no heat. Yeah, I agree. You kind of forced to grow up too fast. We live day by day. We don't think for the future because I don't have much to push me towards the future. Okay, school. Yeah, I can go to school. But while I'm in school, I'm thinking I could be making money all this time. Man, how I'm going to eat tomorrow? How I'm going to feed my younger sisters and brothers tomorrow? Precious Blood and the kind of what put my mind straight forward. Like, it just reaffirmed me that I know I could do it. Coming to the precious blood, like, you got that constant push. Like, man, you could do it, you could do it, that encouragement. I've been working at the center probably for like six, seven years. My main job is this magazine I type from people that's locked up in prison. They write poems, they draw pictures, and they send them to us. And I put it in a magazine format and send it back out to them. <laughs> to get people that's incarcerated to voice something, to, you know, to look forward to. You got thousands of other people looking at your poem, you know, that's, that's a good feeling. I'm a youth outreach worker. Um, I work with youth coming out of the juvenile detention center, but um, we also work with the youth in the community. I actually go to court with the youth, stand in front of the judge with the youth. It's like they never by themselves. Even if they incarcerated, I know their court date, I know what time to be there, and I'm there. The courts, they basically just tell them, you have to do this, that, this, that, and this, and that, but they don't walk the kids to the front doors. Because it's easy to say, here, here's a bus car, go to school. But it means so much more to the youth for you to walk them into the school, talk to the principal with them, be there with them, be that support system with them. And that's why I feel like, you know, me, Lamont, and our other coworkers, being young black men, doing it positive, we play a big role in our community. 
even though I don't like what's going on around here, you know, it's still my home. This all I know. This all I ever knew. I seen the goodness in this neighborhood, and I like to see it get back that way. Yeah, I agree. Cause I mean, me being the person I am, I feel like we could build ourselves up so much more. Cause I know the precious blood means a lot to our community. So if we can expand and, and help a lot more people, then I think our community would be a lot better. Starting with ourselves. The next story will feature a conversation between Marty Weinfeld and Sarah Frank. Marty Weinfeld grew up in Chicago and Evanston. Weinfeld speaks to his girlfriend, Sarah Frank, about how his father was absent for a lot of his childhood and how that affected him. This story was featured on WBEZ and was edited by Bill Healy. You said that when you were younger, you were moving around a lot with your mom and your siblings. Mm -hmm. And where was your dad? You're not the first person to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where was he where is dad um for a lot of that he was in prison he was uh in jail in lima peru after having been uh caught with a handful of kilos of cocaine and before then he was um in prison for i think counterfeiting or something like that he had been in prison a good portion of my life, but really I was conscious of his prison time only from sixth grade to freshman in high school. And um, in that age, your dad is legitimately, profoundly your hero, you know, and uh, I felt great and substantial and worthy when I was with him, and he was gone. That was about as hard as... um, it was about as hard as a thing um, I could ever imagine. It is no wonder that uh, I chose to spend those years baked and stoned and hiding and running to any kind of um, oblivion that, I, that, that would come my way. What was your relationship like when you were older and he was back from prison? We got along great. It's funny, he came back and he was worried about me because I was a wreck, you know, failing in school and getting arrested on probation. And um, he didn't have to say anything. I could tell by his look that he was couldn't believe that his son was following it kind of in his footsteps, um, but in a mo- more low-rent <laughs> fashion. And uh, there was no doubt that he loved me when he left and loved me when he came back. And um, he did everything in his power um, to get me out of jail, get me into treatment, and guide me. And I've been sober not ever since, but soon afterwards. How do your experiences with your father inform your experiences as a father? In most ways. I don't do it perfectly, but I feel like time is not the, the number one metric. It's, it's, the, it's the availability the connection, it's what you do in that time.
Our third story features a conversation between Shanita Howard and Frez Okendo. Shanita and Frez are members of the CGLA's Leadership Council, which is a group of people impacted by the criminal justice system and seeks to advocate against barriers to employment. In this story, Shanita describes her barriers to employment. This piece was edited by Katie Clarkson. I had a pretty normal childhood until I got to like an, a teenager. Going to high school, I started noticing that things were different. It was a lot of peer pressure for me. I first got in trouble, it was in 92. I was riding in the car with this guy I was dating, and the car was a stolen car I was riding in, and I was charged with auto theft as well. And so as I got, you know, a little older, I went back to school and come to find out You know, I couldn't do nursing because I had something on my background. And for me, I had to go through all these different hoops. I had to get a lawyer. I had to get a health care waiver just to be a nursing assistant. Even when I got the health care waiver, I was still being denied employment. I was like, hey, this is not right, you know. Why should I stop or give up on my hopes and dreams of becoming a nurse one day? I paid my debt. I did my probation. I did everything that I supposed to have done, but I still felt black boxed where I couldn't even get, you know, simple nursing assistant job. I get a phone call. The lady told me, you know what, Miss Howard, you are so qualified. I want to give you the job, but I can't because we don't accept the health care waiver. So how did you feel when she told you that? The way I mean, she's I trying was, to on the mo- inside. I was like crushed, but I didn't let her know. I still smile. I still had my, my good, good, smile good, face, good, good, but good, on the good. inside, I was so yeah. hurt because I needed it at that time. You know, sleeping in my car, pretty much homeless, and you know, I just thank God for family and friends, and you know, people who I met in Cabrini Green Legal Way, who just, you know, helped me along the way. And it was like, Sheena, don't give up. And for me, when I got to Springfield, because I went to Springfield, it was 2014, me, Representative Camille Lilly, and that, like, healthcare industry folks, we were, like, sitting around this round table, and I gave my story, and I told them, look, I'm not giving up on, on what I believe in because I'm going to be a nurse. I'm not going to let this stop my future. And they opened up the door. The, a bill was passed. So now for me, I am back in the medical field. I'm excited because this is something that I love to do. It's a passion of mine. I'm glad that um, I waited because I felt like this job was a blessing for me. You know, I'm, I'm a mom of four. And I had to raise my children, you know, up by myself. But I'm grateful to say that I have three college graduates and I have one son. He's in his third year in college. So I'm proud. I didn't I didn't give up on my dreams as well. I took care of my kids being a nursing assistant. I'm going to return back to school and work on my BSN in nursing. So for me, the sky is the limit. Next, we hear a conversation between Beverly Houston and Colette Payne about their experiences as women in prison and the bonds they formed on the inside. Here they are.
that day in commissary when we were in prison. <laughs> I was in the back and I was filling the baskets. And the bosses that I had, the COs, they were jokesters all the time telling jokes and, and kind of being disrespectful and degrading towards the women. A lot of the girls would always be afraid to speak up. So that day when you came in, I couldn't quite hear, but I remember hearing, I think it was Rodell, holler, no. And he took the commissary list and pushed it back. So I kind of like looked over and I'm like, what's going on? And you were just standing there, like, trying to explain, but you didn't have a voice box yet. So you were writing the note. And I can remember I came over and I snatched the note and was like, what does it say? And he's like, pain, go back to what you were doing or else you're going to get in trouble. I looked at him and I knew he was serious, but I also knew I had to defend you, even though I didn't know you. And I don't know why I felt the need to do that, but... I was like, that's not right. They told me I had a certain amount of control over me because one, I didn't have a voice. Two, they didn't know who I was. And three, they didn't know who they were dealing with with the two of us. <laughs> and they found that out because one thing I must say is that when we left, they respected us because we gave them no reason to stereotype us because we were women that were in prison. But when we left out, we had people shaking our heads, knowing that we were not coming back there. You know, it's funny that you would say that because, you know, I've been to prison five times. And the last time that I was there, I could honestly say that I wasn't coming back ever. And it was because of how I saw us as women being disrespected and being treated by the correctional officers. And even though I can speak physically, I didn't always feel I had a voice. Right. Because either you would just get in trouble or you feel you would get thrown in seg. This last time I can honestly say that I was not coming back. And when I did, I said, yeah, I would be back, but it would be to help the women and be an inspiration. I didn't know that I was going to be working for Claim or CGLA and be the Visible Voices coordinator. I think about those very issues that I was struggling with about staying in temporary housing. It's going to be over with in two years. If I don't get a job, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to go back to the streets. And these women, some of them are not able to find a job. And it's a vicious cycle. I don't know the Colette prior to when I met you. I only know of that individual when we do our speaking engagements. And I said, man, I didn't know you went through that. Oh, I didn't know that happened to you, you know. And then I see where you are now. But I think whatever road we've come down or whatever negative stuff that we've done in the past, it's just that it's in the past, you know. Some things that we've done has made us what we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think the word friend says a lot, and I don't call too many people friend. I don't. I love you, Miss Houston. <laughs> love you back.
This last story will feature Lisa Daniels. On July 22, 2012, Lisa Daniels' son was killed in a drug deal that went wrong. Darren Easterling was 25 years old and a father of two children. In this piece, she talks about her son's story and how she's worked to redefine Darren's legacy. Daniels founded the Darren B. Easterling Center for Restorative Justice in her son's honor. This story was featured on WBEZ and was edited by Bill Healy. You know, it's us and those thugs. It's us and those monsters. And the truth of the matter is that those individuals are human beings, too. The more we continue to dehumanize them, the less human they will conduct themselves, the less human they will continue to be. We wanted to give you an update on Lisa Daniels' story. A few weeks ago, she came back to StoryCorps with another friend, Tom Hurley. Daniels wanted to talk about something she decided to do a few months ago. It was at the sentencing hearing for the man who killed her son. I woke up that morning with a sense of purpose. I was going to court and I was going to read a victim impact statement in the sentencing hearing of the man who had now pleaded guilty for the murder of my son, Darren. And so this is what I said. My name is Lisa Daniels, and I want to thank you for this opportunity to share my heart today. Bishop Desmond Tutu is quoted as saying, My humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. I believe that we are all connected by our humanity, and I cannot speak for my son's humanity without speaking for the same humanity of the man who, by only one bad decision, took his life. I don't know all of the details of the encounter between Darren and Michael on July 22, 2012, but there are two things that I know for sure. The first is that no matter what he did or the choices he made, my son didn't deserve to die that day as a result of those choices. And the second thing I know for sure is that this young man does not deserve to spend another year, day, or minute behind bars as a result of his poor choices. When you were reading that statement, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Um, I just hope that it made a difference. I remember feeling relief. I had been wanting to say this for four years. As we sat and as the legal team went through all of their legal stuff, Court was adjourned, and um, Michael was preparing to leave the room. And I looked over at him, and as he turned to walk out of the door, leaving the courtroom, he turned and he looked back at me, and he mouthed the words, thank you. The one thing that forgiveness has taught me is that being able to forgive makes more life possible to do greater things, to do better things. I had to use this experience to help other people. That was Lisa Daniels talking with Tom Hurley. They were recorded by StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. WBEZ's Bill Healy produced this excerpt. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at 
KiteLineRadio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.